And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Dollars and Making Sense. I'm Ray Treveson from OTG Capital, and I'm joined at the microphone this week by somebody new, Kirk Wilson, and he's from Tax and Superannuation Australia. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you may remember the last time we spoke to Tax and Super Australia, I had Natasha Panagis, and she was, uh, and still is, thankfully, an expert on superannuation. Now, today, I've asked Kirk to join me because he is a specialist in capital gains tax. Now, Kirk has worked in tax for over over 30 years, primarily in capital gains tax, and 10 years or so as an advising officer with the ATO. So one hopes that he knows what he's talking about. And 20 years as a senior writer at Thomson Reuters and is currently a tax consultant with Tax and Super Australia. He's also taught tax and commercial law at TAFE and on a part-time basis for some 10 years. So really, I would certainly put uh, Kirk in that uh, specialist expertise area. And so we're going to talk about capital gains tax today. ladies and gentlemen and i preface everything we're going to say today with our normal disclaimer we're all about education here but we do not ever give personal financial advice and so everything that kirk and i talk about today please always take it as education only and should you decide that you need to do something based on the information you've heard today, please go and seek out a professional and get the correct advice. Now, I'm pretty comfortable, Kirk, you'll, you'll agree with me on this, that what we're saying is correct today, but we're not giving specific personal advice, are we? Indeed, right. It's more a general overview and for the mum and dad so they can get a bit of a handle on the key issues. Brilliant. So, look, let's uh, start with first principles. Uh, what is capital gains tax and how long has it been around here in Australia? Well, capital gains tax was introduced back in 1985 by the very colourful treasurer, Mr Keating, and it applies <laughs> <laughs> and it applies to assets that are acquired after the 20th, on or after the 20th September 85 to capture the profit on them on their sale or disposal. Now, that's the broad view. In some ways, there was a bigger agenda there, and the bigger agenda was really the tax law at the time captured income receipts, but there was a big gap for capital receipts. So in a sense, it was it was a capital receipts tax to capture all those capital receipts except the ones that are specifically exempted by the rules. And, and that explains a lot of the oddities about the legislation and the way it works and the rules that you go, well... There's no disposal of an asset or sale of an asset there in profit, yet nevertheless I can be up for capital gains tax. Well, that that explains why, because it has a far broader reach than just, oh, I've sold an, an asset like shares or land and made a profit. How come it applies to other capital receipts? And and, and that's what it's all about. So, so, so what we're really talking about is a piece of legislation that uh, good old PJK brought out uh, when he was uh, treasurer and then uh, obviously prime minister back in the 90s. And so we're talking about a piece of legislation that really has evolved now over close to 30 years when you think about it. So there have been uh, changes and adjustments as we've oh. gone along the way, haven't there? Oh, for sure. There's been lots of significant changes, one of which was the rewrite of the legislation into the plain English version in 1997 or 8, and it was driven by a major tax case that went to the High Court, where the High Court sort of got a bit confused itself. It it made a majority decision, and each judge gave different reasons, and there was a bit of a push for the fact that, well, we need to tidy up what exactly the capital gains tax is about, and it also been the push on... um, on you know rewriting the tax law generally, but it brought into play this thing that capital gains tax will only occur if a defined CGT event 
happens to us asset. Now, there's lots of CGT events. There's some 50 of them. But the main ones that most of us are concerned with the sale or disposal or transfer of an asset. So, and of course, it's also evolved to grant more concessions and exemptions. And the big one that a lot of your listeners may, may be aware of, the one that applies, um, apart from the one that already always existed on a home, it's the one that applies when you sell a small business and you can be subject to capital gains tax. Well, there's lots of concessions there to eliminate or reduce or roll over any capital gain. Yeah, and one can certainly understand why I think you know politicians and legislators took a, a more, uh, I guess, favourable approach to small business because there are the the level of effort and sacrifice that people, I guess, do in establishing and making a small business work. Uh, you, you don't want that, uh, I guess, the gains that are made there, uh, I guess, washed away by, uh, I, I think, what would potentially be seen as seen as a punitive tax or in some instances if it's being handed from a family member to another family member as a, a potential kind of estate tax as well uh, isn't it uh, yes and there's also a powerful drive to make sure that those funds were available for reinvestment productively elsewhere I'm sure that drove a lot of that um, um, those measures as the as did a lot of other changes to the law over that time including the t- taxation of foreign residents on assets in Australia and, um, mm-hmm. and of course everybody's very much aware of the infamous CGT discount or the 50% discount that's available to for any for a lot of capital gains but again with a new labor government you never know that may be in its target in one shape or form. Well, that particular CGT discount was brought in by John Howard, if I remember correctly. That's correct, yes. And uh, that was, uh, that was again, I think, put in there to really induce and, and I think favour share, um, share ownership, I think, yeah. at the time, wasn't it? Well, that was part of it. It was also the complexity of the existing system whereby the indexation system, which only wanted to tax after after inflation gains but it's quite complex to calculate and there is also there's another provision which was called averaging which meant you could you average your capital gain over five years but it had a few loopholes in it which allowed a bit of exploitation <laughs> so instead they went for the big bang 50 percent discount and yes it's it depends on your perspective on the spectrum whether it's a good or bad thing but i can give you one statistic for example the application of the 50 percent discount in a particular area in the i think about 2016 2017 that the revenue lost from it was equivalent to pretty much the budget deficit for that year so there's it's always you know there's always and and that's a bit of an elusive statistic because it assumes that people are going to behave in a certain way but nevertheless it just gives an indication that it is controversial and it is significant and and those who've got capital gains love it because (laughs) it means less is taxed I, I must say, though, um, Kirk, one of the things I, I did my master's degree in public management. And so when I did my degree uh, at UTS, I studied a lot about uh, legislation, the legislative process. And I often laugh about the the West Wing, which talks about making laws is like watching sausages being made. And sometimes it's not all that pretty. And I think anybody that sits back and thinks that writing legislation around capital gains is easy, the 
undesired effects of some elements of CGT is always felt. And that's why when we're talking about CGT today, I guess in an entry level way, we are talking about, I guess, the evolution of a piece of legislation that has been in place now for 28 odd years. And uh, I think in general now... Like 37 years, let me correct you, Ray, more like 35 plus years, from 1985 to today. So that's about 35 plus years. There you go. I stand corrected. Thank you kindly for that. That's the reason we get experts on dollars and making sense, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I know a little bit, but sometimes I can be dangerous as well. Thank you for that. Let me interject there. It's a very good point, Ray. It has evolved over the years from policy perspectives, Mm -hmm. because they want to the government have wants certain policy objectives, but also to, to correct unintended consequences. And um, but I've got to put a word in for the people who draft legislation, and particularly capital gains tax. They are very brilliant at what they do. It's very interlocking. It's like a fine joint in cabinet making. It does interlock <laughs> very well, and you don't realise it until you actually have to work your way through it. That's and a great analogy. I like yeah, that. I like yeah, that a lot. Yeah. So it's not too bad, although there's been a general view, well, the complexity of that at the, at the cost of simple administration, there's always your tension. And I guess that brings me to my next question, Kirk. Do you believe, given the kind of interactions that you have at TSA on a daily and weekly basis, do you think that CGT is well understood in the populace today? No, it is. Some areas are colloquially well understood. You know, the exemption on your home, the fact that you're going to sell shares or your investments at a profit, you're going to pay capital gains tax. But generally, it's not. Even amongst practitioners, there's a whole do, whole range of complexity which which you have to drill down into. I hate using that uh, cliche, but it's true. And, um, <laughs> and, and even they can stumble on it. It's a classic case that often two minds are better than one, you know. The, even the practitioner who knows his stuff still likes to talk about it with somebody else just to make sure they haven't missed anything. And that includes me, by the way. You know, even though I've been at it for a, quite a long time, I, I'm always very conscious of the fact that it's easy to miss something and you need often to bounce ideas off somebody else. The best practitioners I've known have never been afraid to say, well, I don't know it all. Well, I must say, I, I continue on in this game, uh, only having been in it for five or so years, but I, I keep telling my children, the older I get, I find it the, the less I know. So every day I wake up and keep asking questions. So hopefully I, I keep educating myself. And, and this is no different. And I'm hoping to learn something today. And I guess with that, it's a great time to take a short station announcement. You're here on Dollars and Making Sense. I'm Ray Treveson from OTG Capital with Kirk Wilson from Tax and Superannuation Australia. And we'll be back in just a moment. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Dollars and Making Sense. I'm Ray Treveson from OTG Capital. And at the microphone today, I have Kirk Wilson from Tax and Super Australia. And he is the resident expert on capital gains tax. And that's what we're talking about today. Now, specifically, we're going to get to talk about some elements specific in the CGT legislation around homes and residences and inheritance. But before I get to there, before we went to our break, we were talking about what CGT was and where it's come from and where is it well understood? Now, I guess my next question to you, though, Kirk, is what are the common misconceptions around CGT that you come across all the time? I think um, there are probably three ones at your mum and dad level. Everybody thinks your home is totally exempt from capital gains tax. Well, in certain circumstances, you can trigger a partial capital gains tax exemption. 
If you've used it to produce assessable income at any stage, subject to being able to use certain concessions. If you've used it as a place of business, which may well be the case under the COVID regime, a lot of people may have turned part of their house into a place of business, albeit there, there are concessions available to help you there. And um, on, I suppose the other concession is, as I hinted at before, people just see it in the context of selling or disposing assets, but it has a lot broader impact. It's anytime you get a capital receipt, which is not taxed as um, income in the same way your salary is or your interest is, you, you may have to consider whether there's some CGT implications in that. And, mm -hmm, and one mm -hmm. example, one common example at the moment is all those people have been devastated by floods and getting compensation from their insurance company, insurance payouts. Well, technically, that can trigger a capital gain if it's in connection with um, wow. CGT. Except that, I must emphasize, there are a whole range of relief to roll over or to eliminate that gain because of the circumstances. But that's a that's a real big scenario issue. And I feel very sorry for the people who not only have to deal with floods and existence, you know, living in that, that world and fixing things up, but down the track they may have to deal with the little messiness of working out and if they've got any CGT consequences. Wow. Wow. Okay, look, I might just ask uh, specifically, one of the things that I learned, I, I did a little bit of accounting when I was at uni, thankfully not too much. It hasn't um, affected me too much, I guess. But when you're talking about work from home scenarios, and given the fact that pretty well the entire country was locked down for various spates of, of time uh, over the past couple of years, is there a materiality element to, you know, trying to assess capital gains on on a principal residence when you know people these days and given that you know a lot of people i mean i've been working from home in various guises for 20 odd years now um but i've always gone into an office so the notion that i derive my primary income from working from home specifically do you think that that brings up more nasties than it actually delivers benefit to the tax to the tax system though it can certainly bring up some confusion <laughs> for a start. <laughs> the general rule is that your full exemption on your home can be lost or partially lost if you use it to produce accessible income. Now, if you run your business, say, from a, an office that you've got in your home, well, technically, there's some capital, partial capital gains tax liability when you sell that home down the track because it's been used as a, or can be. But again, let me stress, there are very important concessions to eliminate that gain. But the classical scenario has been like where you rent your home. If you've lived in it and then rent it, then unless you avail yourself of certain concessions, you can be subject to capital gains tax on a partial basis because mm. you've used your home to generate Rent. Now, look, I've got to be very careful there because I don't want to scare people in the COVID environment. You're scaring me right now, by no. the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, think the, I think the key thing to remember is to be aware of if you have, during the COVID environment, retreated to your home and used it as a place of business, it's pretty important to have a chat to your accountant about it all and see what the consequences may be. Because, of course, the tax office has taken some, you know, concessional and, 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 um, and treated the matter, um, treated the use of the home in lots of concessional ways because of COVID at the moment. But I suspect the the thing that the area that looms large for a lot of people too is the Airbnb of their homes. Ah, now that's a different that thing is, though, that, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it is. But nevertheless, it's one that I suspect that's pretty large on the um, 
Commissioner's Radar. And at the moment, he's taking a particularly a particular approach to it. And um, it still can have some CGT issues to people. But um, and it can and in certain cases, it may even be regarded as a business use of your home, which may be to your advantage, depending on the circumstances. But I really don't want to go into detail there because it's the commissioner has a position at the moment and it, it and on top of it all it depends on the exact circumstances but again let me stress if you've got a airbnb situation probably a good idea to go have a chat to your accountant about it all yeah it, it's one of those very tangled webs isn't it because i um i talk to a lot of people around it for example and one of the very basics I always say to them is, look, what's your anticipated revenue going to be? Because very much so, uh, I'll my daughter is a great uh, example where she works, but she also likes doing hobby and craft and stuff, and she wants to turn it into a little side hustle. And I said, look, that's perfectly fine. I said, but you've got to understand that once you get to a threshold, and for GST purposes, for example, it's $75,000 a year, but one would suggest that the tax office would look, I think, keenly at certainly far less amount of money than that before they start you know, raising eyebrows and start saying, OK, is that accessible income? Uh, are you deducting you know, from your taxable income, et cetera? And if you are using premises, for example, like the family home, does CGT then come potentially into play on that one as well? The question of whether you're carrying on a business is uh always a complex one you know Ooh, yeah. Ooh, yes yeah. <laughs> and it's not just a monetary threshold one it has a lot lot to do with um the nature of your activities as a, you know and um you've got to pull out the distinguished hobby and and again it's um yeah yeah it can get very messy and since there may be advantages to you to say you are, but there may be advantages to say you aren't. And um, but but that's not the deciding issue. It's a question of fact and law whether you are carrying on a business. So oh, yeah. again, if you're in that tricky scenario, um, for GST purposes, there's the threshold issue. But for income tax purposes, it's it's not so much a threshold. It's a question of what is going on as a question of fact and law, and what are your intentions. And um, again, something to be be just a bit wary of and. Do a bit of research yourself or, again, go see your accountant just to see which Get side. professional advice, yeah. Yep, yep. Now, I, I might remind the listeners, this is something I learned even back in the 90s, and I think, you know, please, Kirk, uh, disagree with me if you think otherwise, but when I was doing my law unit, I had this excellent guy te teaching us business law, and he asked the simple question. He said, who do you think's in, in uh, court the mo most often? And we always thought it was criminal, but it's not. It's the tax office. Mm. The tax office has the biggest bunch of lawyers in the land, and they are in court more than any other organisation in this country. Now, that was back in the 90s. I don't think it's changed too much uh, um, since then, has it? I'd like to pick you up on, on that, Ray. I've got to Please go, do. I've got to go into bat for the tax office. The tax office tries to educate people and, 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 um, and practitioners they don't want to see matters in court. Oh, I, to, I totally they, agree with you. I totally want, agree with you on that. They want to resolve it, and they don't want to see matters in court for a range of reasons. They don't want to have to, to waste money if the, the matter can be resolved, Oh, and as does the taxpayer. Nevertheless, if there's a key issue, 
that has to be resolved or a difficult taxpayer, they're not afraid to use their ammunition as far as oh, I can. And, and I, I would wholeheartedly agree with you on that. And and I must say, in my dealings uh, personally with the tax office over a number of years, and I run my own SMSF, for example, um, I had an uh, unfortunate situation where I, I had bad advice and I was brought to task by uh, the tax office who did audits on my SMSF. Now, i got to tell you, they were compassionate, they cared and listened to what I had to say. And I totally support what you said just then. They did everything in their power to make sure we didn't go to court. And their thing was about, you know, look, we need to solve this problem and the, and the like. But I still harp back to my uni days when my my practitioner at that time wasn't suggesting that the tax office was necessarily overly litigious. It's just the fact that people will try it on. And I guess the tax office is an easy target of people that saying, yeah, let's see if we can uh, pull, pull the wool over the tax office eyes. And I dare say CGT has been brought up on more than uh, one occasion. Well, yeah, for, for sure. And as I said, it was the, that big high court decision in, in a capital <laughs> gains tax case, which which gave a lot of in, impetus to the rewrite of the, the, the tax law into plain English. Uh, and But again, I suspect if you could have a look at the stats of um, the commissioner in court in the 90s and maybe in the last 10 years, I, I suspect there's a lot more reluctance to pull out the litigation um, um, weapon uh, unless the taxpayers, you know, once the showdown at the OK Corral sort of thing, because well, it's not in anybody's interest at the end of the day. No, I, I totally agree. I uh, totally agree. The taxpayer who wants a victory or the commissioner who wants a principle settled for the sake of whatever. Yeah, they're, you know? they're, they're putting the fox skin up for yeah. other foxes to see, I guess. They're yeah, making yeah. an example. And I guess I, I guess it's topical given that we are now post-election and, you know, when we're looking at the precarious budget situation, I'll be fascinated to see what the tax office is going to do when we're talking about anywhere between 30 to $40 billion of JobKeeper yes. that was paid to companies that shouldn't have got it. But that's for another time, and I'm yeah, happy sure. to, to wax lyrical. For but sure. today... It's, it, and let me just... Talking about tax and tax issues, it's like, <laughs> it's like writing books. There's no end to it. <laughs> I bet. But today, I've specifically asked you onto the show because we've been talking a lot uh, on Dollars and Making Sense in the past number of uh, editions about inheritances, about uh, enduring powers of attorney and last wills and testaments and the like. And so there is something very specific in capital gains tax law that uh, I guess revolves around inheriting a home and the passing of family assets from generation to generation. And so that's very specifically, uh, Kirk, what I'd like to talk to you about today. Now, Again, I'd suggest, given the discussions we had even before we came on to the show, there's a certain amount of complexity there. But maybe you can break it down into you know bite-sized chunks for the listeners when it comes to CGT and a home that is being inherited. What's the story? Before, first of all, just by way of background, it's often a person's chance for the biggest windfall gain, and so you know they inherited the home despite the sad circumstances in which it often happens. But there's an important capital or, gain. Or gleeful, depending on the circumstances. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. No, 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 I'm not going there either. I'm just suggesting it's not always sad, but there but we go. It's part of the big CGT concessions there. If you inherited, uh, if you inherited a home, there's what everybody, most people understand is the sale within two-year rule. If you sell it within two years of the deceased death, then there's no capital gains tax. That's, hey, that's that's the an main one to know. That is, then that's the one that mum and dad's probably here in the pubs and or with amongst their friends. There's also another element to that 
concession. And it's the one that people aren't quite aware of because it's a bit more messy, but it's the one that if you've inherited that home and then you make it that your home, then if you continue to live in it then and eventually sell it, well, you can get the concession also, subject to the fact that you can't have two homes going at the same time. So Fine. there's that second arm to it. The, it's the it's the big CGT concession for an inherited home. Hang that, on, can I just back you up yeah, a moment, yeah. though, Kirk? When you said that if, let, let's say, for example, it's an easy estate, it's just one uh, beneficiary, and that person chooses to live in the house, are you saying then that there's no CGT accessible? Correct. If they more or less make it their home as soon as practicable after the deceased has passed, and they continue to live in it as their home, and then maybe sell it five, ten years down the track and use gotcha. any other concessions that are available to them to treat it as their home, they can likewise get the concession when they sell it. So there's these two ways you can uh -huh. get the exemption on an inherited home. You essentially live in it and make it your home and then sell it down the track, or you make sure you sell it within two years of the deceased death or otherwise transfer it. That's the key things. But there's a couple of important preconditions that have, can't be lost sight of because it because some people can get a bit confused about the rule and to to take you to move to the next key thing to note about this area is that the, the rule is it only applies to what they call a dwelling or a person's home you can't use this rule in respect of an inherited shares or inherited vacant land except in a couple of more specific obscure cases so it's very important that it only applies to that thing that is defined as a, a dwelling which is basically something that was a person's home on up to two hectares of, of land. So that's the key precondition. Mm, okay. Well, look, that brings us to a great point in today's show to take a short station break. And uh, you're here on Dollars and Making Sense. I'm Ray Treveson from OTG Capital. I'm having a fascinating discussion about capital gains tax and the inherited home with Kirk Wilson from Tax and Super Australia. We'll be back in just a moment. And welcome back to Dollars and Making Sense. I'm Ray Treveson from OTG Capital. Always a pleasure to have your company. And at the microphone today, I have Kirk Wilson from Tax and Super Australia. And he is the resident CGT expert at Tax and Super. And we've got him along today to educate us and to talk about capital gains tax and very specifically, some of the CGT things that happen around homes that are inherited. Now, before we went to the last station break, Kirk, we were talking about a home that's inherited and the two-year rule. Now, whilst we were having that break, though, we were quickly talking off air about some of the, the little variances that occur and what it actually means to be sold. So why don't we get stuck into that uh, in, in this next session? You know, what does it actually mean for the house to have been actually sold within two years? Okay. Under capital gains tax rules, what they mean by sold within two years is you must have settled on the sale within two years of the deceased death. Not, not just signed the contract for exchange purposes, you've actually got to settle within two years or such further time as the commission may allow. Now, this has been an area that has received quite a bit of amendment to the law because mm -hmm. it's one that needs to provide a bit more concession to the taxpayer. So you can apply to the commissioner for an extension of time if there are circumstances that require it. However, even more significantly, 
the commissioner a few years ago said, well, instead of us being inundated with requests for an extension of time, we'll let you, in accordance with the general principle of the tax law, let you self-assess an extra 18 months in certain circumstances. And those ones that where there's essentially circumstances beyond your control, which prevent you from selling that home within the two-year period. Classically, where the estate is challenged, the estate may be complex. That's another reason. There may be problems with the trustee. The trustee may have been seriously ill or incapacitated, the executor. So those are the type of things which allow you to self-assess in accordance with the commissioner's important guidelines, which you should always look at. And again, that's a matter to have a discussion with your, your accountant or professional advisor about. It allows you to self-assess an extra 18 months, which is fantastic. But the other requirement is that once you, this little problem has been overcome, you can't uh, just sit around. You've got to make sure you, you, you start actively selling the place. And for one thing for sure, the commissioner's not going to allow you to just hang on to it so that you can wait for the price to improve over a number of years. <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's set out very clearly in, in the commissioner's guidelines. I guess that's now, quite topical given the kind of rises we've had in, in real estate uh, prices right around the country. But I guess, gee, if you've got those kind of fairly set limitations, I mean, it would be in their best interest to then either live in the house or actually get a move on, wouldn't it? I, I, I would think so. But, 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 in, but there are obviously genuine cases, as most of us know of ones, where estates have been delayed. You know, the classical family dispute over an estate. Nothing worse than family disputes, is it, in any mm. circumstances, especially over an estate. Because there's this golden goose. Now the, there's the, the egg, it's laid, and, and uh, people like to have a pick at it, you know. So there, there are genuine reasons, and there also can be a whole range of other reasons, you know, like uh, maybe... COVID has made it very hard if you've had foreign resident beneficiaries who need to come in. There's another little point to make too, in the same way that you can't wait for the property market to um, to rise, you can't sort of sit on this acquired uh, property and do major capital improvements to it to sell it at a higher higher price. You know that. Oh, really? It. Yeah, you can you can do things to get it in order to sell, but the commissioner doesn't accept that. You know, I've inherited this three bedroom home. And then if during that two-year period I put in a uh, another level, pool, <laughs> another level of swimming pool, a cabana, uh, you know, a, a, a double garage and a and a, and a uh, cellar, well, he's not going to accept that you're selling the same home you inherited. Mm. That's, now, not, that's not straight to the pool room, is it? <laughs> that's right. Which leads me back to just a couple of preconditions that I should have just touched on, that the rule applies to, as I said, homes on up to on the acreage, it also applies to pre-CGT dwellings, you know, that ones that you, the deceased may have acquired before the 20th September 85. And this doesn't have to be a home. It could be a rental property. As long as the deceased acquired it before the 20th September 85, that also comes into the sale within two-year rule and the other rule about occupying it in order to be able to sell it CGT free. That's very important. But to the extent there are pre-CGT homes around. Now, the other important rule, if it's not a pre-CGT home, it's, it's, it's a post-CGT one, which means it was acquired by the deceased after that date. And in that case, it's got to have been the deceased's main residence, their home, at their date of death and 
the wording of the legislation is not then being used to produce accessible income. Now, often what happens, but as a sort of a general concession, not it's in the legislation, as a general concession, and it's very practical, sometimes a, the deceased is not in their home at their date of death. They're in a nursing home. Uh-huh. And while, yeah, that makes sense, while, yeah. While their home is being rented to uh-huh. help pay for the nursing home. Now, that rented home can still qualify as their main residence at their date of death as long as it hasn't been rented for more than six years. You can use a concession to continue to treat it. It's called the absence concession, to continue to treat it as your main residence at your date of death. And it's there specifically in the legislation. There's a specific provision that covers that. So that that prerequisite or that precondition or that, that it's the deceased home at their date of death also includes where it's deemed to be by way of using this absence concession. Now, look, uh, once again, Ray, I stress again that it's this can be a bit confusing, this area, because the legislation seems to say one thing in one area and another thing in another. So it's something that you really need to speak to your professional advisor about to see whether you fall within that the requirements of that precondition. But it makes sense because it's a concession and lots of people do fund their their nursing home by means of either selling the family home during their lifetime, which means they get it CGT free anyhow, or they continue to rent it to generate income to pay for their nursing home. I guess it really does hone in on what we were saying at the very beginning of today's program, uh, Kirk, is that uh, whilst you know, we look at the surface and uh, at the very high level, you think CGT should be reasonably straightforward. As you delve deeper and deeper into the subject, it becomes far more complex. And every time you you open your mouth and say another sentence about a particular scenario, and given the fact that, for example, my own uh, mother uh, unfortunately passed away early this year from COVID in a nursing home. And uh, so we we faced exactly that situation. Now, thankfully, uh, we didn't have to go through a lot of rigmarole. The, the will was reasonably straightforward. And, uh, and I must say, I've learned a tremendous amount from today's session already, given that I wasn't aware of some of this legislation, because again, it doesn't cross my desk. I, I'm a fund manager and I, I look after a fixed income uh, asset group. And so this is the kind of stuff, you know, why I welcome people coming onto the show and and educating because when you look at this kind of exemption or the the suite of exemptions that are out there, I must say what the tax office has done is adopted, I think, by the sounds of things, a, a quite a, an empathetic view of exactly. what's happening. You know, you've got to take into consideration that, you know, estates don't always work out easily. Yeah. And uh, gee, ladies and gentlemen, remember the interview I did with uh, with Dina Jane's and, uh, and uh, LGEN uh, estate planning wow, some of the case studies that they've come up with that, that you know, these are real life situations that, uh, as you rightly said, Kirk, you know, that all of a sudden the golden goose lays the egg and the next thing you know, every man and his dog wants a piece of it. And uh, if, if you then throw that CGT bomb in there, it's like, whoo-wee, it can Wait, get, I, I, uh, it can get really a, crazy. I think there's a, a rugby game during camp, um, lockdown where they did a welcome to country and the uh, gentleman who did the welcome to country was very witty. He said, uh, where there's a will, 
there's a lot of relatives. And I thought, that's true. <laughs> well, so I, had a, I, I had a good laugh at that. I, I, I got to say, I, I, I have a, a wry smile because I can smirk a little bit, I, I guess, and, and, and chuckle given uh, my own recent experiences yeah. in the last sort of four to six I, months. I, but I don't want to know. I've had, I've, I've dealt with quite a few of them myself. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> and, and I guess... Can I just touch on something here? You talked about the evolution of the legislation. The commissioner is 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 um generous. Well, he is. I mean, originally when this rule came back in about sale within two years, it was sale within one year. Oh, and so really? It was real. It was realised. Well, that's pretty tough to arrange a sale of an, a a house you inherit in one year. Oh, it cannot take longer than that to administer a state generally. So, you know, it, it was again the evolution of or the changes being made to reflect. The reality out there, and in to, on top of it, it's always to remember. There's there's a recent very full a full federal court case where it involved the small business concessions, and the first thing is a complex interpretation of how they are applied and whether they would apply in the taxpayer's favour. Well, the first thing the the judge said was that these are concessions, and they've got to be interpreted in that manner. And um, I think the judge who gave that judgment is the one who's ended up on the high court too. So it's very important. To understand that a lot of CGT concessions as rules are concessions and they are written in that way to for the broadest possible effect, you know? I, I got to say, again, from personal experience, my dealings with the tax office in and around being a trustee of a self-managed super fund, I found them empathetic and sympathetic to some of the, I, I, and I'm a I'm an industry professional and I have my qualifications, but even they said, look, it can be uh, challenging at times. And when you think about the CGT uh, legislation and the evolution of that, and I guess the you, you mentioned, I think, at the beginning of the show, what, 50 different instances of CGT? Yep. That, that can apply. And so when you think about 50 different instances, I'm pretty comfortable in suggesting that in each one of those, there'd be exemptions and, and yeah, fine I'll, tweaking I'll, of the legislation absolutely. along the way, right? Yeah. And uh, just so your listeners don't get uh, worried about there's 50 different uh, transactions that can <laughs> CGT, most of them will only ever encounter selling something or gifting something or transferring something, which is CGT event A1, the main event, you know. So a lot of the other events involve intangible assets or um, creating rights or at, are at the high end of the, the corporate world, you know. So most of – I'd like to think that most of your mum and dad listeners are only going to run into the the sale or disposal, the change in ownership of uh, CGT assets. That's the thing that will trigger CGT in – it would be interesting to see well, in what – what number of cases, but I suspect that's the majority by far. And I think it's worthy to, to note to the listeners, uh, Kirk, that the advice that you give on a day-by-day -day basis at Tax and Super is for industry professionals, isn't Correct. it? It's that's not right. for the mums and dads. So you are sort of the advisor to advisors, aren't you? That's exactly right. We have members who are accountants and lawyers, et cetera, and, 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 and they stumble on a problem or they need just some confirmation that they're on the same page as another professional. And and um, they come up with some wonderful issues, you know. And at times I go, wow, no wonder, that's a complex one. And it's, um, as I suggested to you at the beginning when we first talked about this, I said, well, in some ways, CGT problems, each one's different. It's like, as I said, the analogy that I once read was it's like taking a walk or a trek through the bush and never being able to find the same path twice. You know? <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. And I, I think one of the aspects of 
Um, when you think about what you provide day by day, I, I think it's a really abject lesson for the listeners out there that if you're not sure, ask. And I think it's a really nice thing to know that advisors come to an organisation like the TSA when they're not sure themselves. And I guess I also use that backdrop of professional associations. I'm members of, uh, of a number of different professional organisations in my own dealings day by day, but I also do it to cover my rear end so yep. that if, for example, I am giving advice, very specific advice to a client or trying to direct them in a certain way, I will use an organisation like TSA or the ATO for that matter as well in being able to substantiate and justify my stance because there are many times that people will sit there and say, well, what do you know, Ray? I'll say, well, sometimes it's not just me. It's sometimes it's the actual tax office that is saying what I'm saying as well. And I think, Kirk, one of the reasons we love having experts like you on Dollars and Making Sense is that you really bring home that bacon in regards to knowledge and I guess that bastion of really coming across this day by day and really seeing a whole cavalcade of different scenarios that, you know, Joe Schmo and I'm a Joe Schmo. And uh, I mean, some of the stuff I had mentioned in previous discussions, that's like, wow, I never thought of that. <laughs> so, um, Ray, I think there's a general comment there. We all learn as we grow a bit older that, you know, or, or if you're smart from the start, nobody has a monopoly on ideas, you know. Or, or, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, I suspect, you know, whether you're in the commercial boardroom or, or you're a bunch of generals sitting around the table working out how to, you know, to, to do something, that everybody's got, you know, if you listen, everybody's got a good idea, you know, and you can't dismiss them just because, and it's likewise the same in tax, you know, you just... Uh, it's, it's often that, that it's easy to miss things or to have a different angle on things. So it's nice to have an open mind and, and listen to other people's views. Now, look, I'm going to throw you a bit of a curveball, Kirk. One of my good buddies I swim with every week, he um, he's involved in a farm property down in Victoria, of all places. And um, this scenario I don't think is going to be uh, uncommon as this country keeps growing. And he uh, presently owns a bit of farming property that all of a sudden is being looked at with very anxious and envious eyes from developers. Of course. And he all of of a sudden found out something and he ran it past me and he said, Ray, have you ever heard of a windfall tax? And I said, well, look, I'm sorry, I've got to go to my internet search engine here. And so I went to Dr. Google and I said, what the heck is a windfall tax? And it's a, a state tax in Victoria. But I'm yeah. curious, have you come across windfall look, tax in your CGT travels? No, look, um, th that is a peculiarly state tax, which I, I don't know much about. And um, there's been talk of it at federal level i think the um john alexander was talking about you know if you own property on a transport corridor or one they proposed to build and it went up in massive value well maybe we should they should capture some of that value but look at the moment it's only victoria that has a win for tax and um i'd be i'd be talking outside my area of expertise if i think i knew anything about it but to get back to your other point at the moment i, I have dealt with quite a few cases where Farmers have been offered huge sums to sell their acreage for property development purposes. And um, and then there are issues of, well, what are the tax consequences there? Because often they're under instalment contracts, which involve, mm -hmm. well, when, when does the liability rise and when do you have to pay it? But more importantly, mostly with farmers, if they happen to be qualify as small businesses, which is some complex tests involved there, they can, they can sell that farm 
CGT free or wow. roll up or roll over their game into super depending on their age and their circumstances. So well on both fronts far- though, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> a lot of but good luck to them. A lot of farmers have, have, have worked their backside off and and maybe they're reaching the retirement age with a broken back and bad years well, behind them and, and good luck to them that they can I, I I know of certain instances uh, that come across my desk where I'm looking at parcels of land between the Brisbane and Gold Coast corridor that uh, have traditionally been farming properties, and all of a sudden they they are sitting on the proverbial gold mine. Let me tell I, you, and and I, so uh, I don't think Queensland's got a state tax in that regard. And I, I know, given some of the discussions pre-election around rail transport corridors and uh, a certain member for uh, a New England shire uh, that uh, has been re-elected, but uh, there's certain talk about uh, a VFT. (laughs) And given that our new Prime Minister is a big proponent of uh, a very fast train, these will be fascinating discussions uh, as we we move forward. And look, I I think it's... not just now, but it has been in the past too. And, and I've had a lot of those cases come across my desk and the sums involved have been highly significant. In fact, Eye-watering. Um, yeah, I, that's a – yeah. And even I've had a, had matters um, with property down the Northern Beaches Way, which have been you know, classically a, a, a home that's been inherited. And it's it's um, it's attracted the attention of developers because it's on a lot of acreage and so – Oh, Yeah, yeah. So, yes, okay. but now, look, so, to get back to the inherited home, there's another very important um, point that I that I just want to touch on is that it not only – these rules not only apply to the inherited home as a whole, but if, say, you and I were brothers and we inherited this home equally, we both inherited a 50% interest in this home. And our dealings in that 50% interest can be separate. For example, I could sell you my interest – and you take it on. Mm-hmm. Now, the rules that I've just discussed generally apply on an interest-by-interest interest basis. So you, you, I could have the scenario where I sell my interest to you within two years and I get the capital gains tax exemption. You've now got the whole home and you might decide to, say, rent it for five or ten years. You're not going to get the exemption. But I've got it in respect of my interest and you've now got the home, which is comprised of the two interests, your original inherited one and the one I sold you, and you're going to have different tax consequences. It's just something, again, to bear in mind, and it can get quite messy, to be quite honest, when you're dealing with uh, an estate where there's quite a few (laughs) siblings who inherit an interest in a wealthy home and they all want to deal with their interests in a different way. So it's it's right then and there you need to sit down together first at the family table and work out whether you can work in unison and then Go see your professional advisor to see how it's going to pan out. And I think that's a great way to finish off today's discussion. But, you know, what we've said all the way along, you know, this is not personal advice, ladies and gentlemen. Please go and see a a financial professional, particularly uh, an estate law professional in this case, as well as a CGT uh, expert as well. Kirk, it's been an absolute pleasure having you at the microphone here at Dollars and Making Sense. I'd like to thank you for your time and thank TSA uh, for letting us uh, access your brains for today. I'm Ray Treverson from OTG Capital. It's always a pleasure to have your company here on Dollars and Making Sense. And until next time, Kirk, thank you so kindly for being with us. Thank you, Ray. All the best.